This panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference hosted at Queen's University from the 29th of February to the 1st of March 2020. pointed out that we have a very holistic panel and that we have a Haudenosaunee perspective, an Anishinaabe perspective, and a settler perspective all in one. Um, so just to begin the series of presentations, I wanted to start by acknowledging the land and doing it in a little bit of a different spin. So acknowledging that we're situated on Haudenosaunee and Haudenosaunee territory, but also um, using the Ohondagari-Wadekwa as something to ground our minds in before we begin talking about education and reconciliation today. So um, actually sending our greetings and thanks to all aspects of the natural world, starting with the people, the least significant aspect of the natural world, um, without which this natural world will continue turning. Um, so acknowledging all the people who are here today with us, um, acknowledging the people who worked really hard to make this event happen and thanking them, acknowledging the people who couldn't be here with us today um, but are still in our minds, acknowledging the people who have yet to come, as well as the people who have come before us, who without which we wouldn't be able to live our lives the way that we do. So 
starting with the people and then moving from the ground up, um, acknowledging Mother Earth, the waters, the fish, the animals, the insects, the plants, um, the trees, the birds, and then also the celestial beings like the sun, the moon, and Sungwetisong, who make sure that our cycles of renewal continue. So with that, I'll turn it over to Jackson. Okay, thank you for having me. If we can just go to the next slide. Yeah, we'll just start off on my presentation. Has anyone heard of an Indian day school? Yeah, we have some people, some of my cohort that's heard of it too much maybe. Uh, yeah, so thank you for coming today. I'm going to be talking about the history of Indigenous education in Ontario and putting a new spin on it from the traditional understandings that we have of residential schools. So within the last few years, Canadians have learned a lot about the residential schools, so the Truth and Reconciliation reports, but not so much about the Indian Day schools. So we're going to try to get over that binary. If we can go to the next slide. So Helen Raptis, who is one of the only scholars that looks at this issue in Canada, has stated that the critical evaluations of the federal government's historical role in educating Indigenous peoples has been hampered by historians' almost singular focus on residential schooling. I would really recommend her book there, What We Have Learned. Um, it's just an interesting uh, take on the day schools from out west, but we haven't really done this across Canada. So my research is looking at Ontario, but I'm just going to set the climate of what's been going on with the national class action lawsuit. If we can go to the next video, and we'll just play this very quickly. With the proposed settlement agreement, class members will be eligible to receive a single payment ranging from $10,000 to a maximum of $200,000 for harm suffered while attending an Indian day school. The difference between residential and day schools is those who attended Indian day schools were allowed to return home at night. Despite that, many endured physical, mental, and sexual abuse. And most Canadians still do not know that beginning in the 1920s, close to 200,000 Indigenous children attended federally operated Indian day schools across With the proposed March. settlement agreement, um, class the next slide. Yeah, thank you. Um, it just shows that members will be eligible. Minister of Indigenous and Northern Affairs has been trying to make this settlement happen. It's being implemented as we speak, but we still have not really heard from Indigenous people. So if we go to the next slide, I'm going to give to receive a single. If it works, goes to the next slide. <laughs> payment ranging from ten thousand dollars to a maximum of two hundred thousand dollars for harm suffered while attending an Indian day school. <laughs> the difference between residential and... Okay, there we go, there we go. Okay, thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to present a very quick history of Indigenous education in Canada, but we're going to do this in a circular fashion, is how Indigenous people think of time, rather than the linear way that a lot of history classes do. So I rely on Nicole Bell, who is actually a master's student here at Queen's, and now is a faculty professor at Trent. And she says that time is like a spiral, and as we move around the spiral in our experiences, they change, and then it moves on to what we believe in and how we can construct the past. So this is kind of used as a metaphor in this paper on how we can think of the past differently. So if we can go to the next one. So we'll start with education before colonialization, and this is period one. So education happened on these lands for thousands of years before the arrival of Europeans. And I'd just like to say this is still ongoing today. It has been completely destroyed by the colonial mindset. And this is kind of an example from Lindsay Morecambe's, one of her classes, how she teaches, one of my committee members over on West Campus. But generally, these indigenous forms can be characterized as oral histories, teaching stories, ceremonies, apprenticeships, learning games, formal instructing, tutoring, and tag-along teaching. So Ebder Hampton was one of the only like, historians that have looked at this overall, and he believes this traditional education is what all people should try to strive to before it was influenced by colonialism. 
colonialization. So if you go to the second one, so this is going to be pretty quick overview. I feel like I could write a paper on each one of these different stages for how much happened, but it just gives a brief overview. So the second stage is sporadic attempts at Indian day schools, and this was before 1833. So Methodist and Anglican churches partnered with indigenous peoples to make schools. If you know the story of Joseph Brandt, he settled over near Tynandaga today, present day, based on the American War of Independence in 1784. And in that area, in the Bay of Quinte, he established the first day schools, the partnership. And these first schools were actually very positive, and they worked together to educate First Nation students in the ways of both worlds. They used readers and prayer books in the Mohawk language, which was a market change that would come in the next few decades. So if we can go to the next one. So there's disagreements of Indian day schools here in 1833 to 1867. So 1833 is an important year for this understanding. It's because when the military alliances switched to a civil authority and the upper Canadian government really started rolling out plans for education. So there became a disagreement over education between Methodists, Anglicans, and the Jesuits who were all kind of fighting for control and funding from the government at the time. Um, and really the movement towards residential schools is actually, I think, Ryerson's main fault, if you want to point to one person. And Ryerson's 1847 report of Indian schools, who recommended that residential schools be used over the Indian day schools that have been successful so far. So Ryerson, who kind of founded our own education systems, then um, said we should do residential schools for other children. So if we go to the next slide now. Uh, in period four, this is Dominion of Canada and the Indian residential schools, oh, Indian day schools. Um, so in 1867, Canada became Canada as the country that we know today, and there's still disagreements on how we should educate First Nation people in this country. So the Indian Act of 1867 really was paternalistic and took control of indigenous lives and forced them onto reserves. And there was a failure of the Indian day schools for assimilation in this period. So they were realizing that Indian people were not going to the, uh, the reserve school because it was less quality. And the Davin Report on Industrial Schools, which has a horrific name of Industrial Schools for Indians and Half-Breeds, was founded in 1879, and that really solidified the shift to residential schools in Canada, even though more indigenous children would still go to an Indian day school. In that report, he says that the influence of the wigwam was stronger than the influence of the school, so that they had to remove the indigenous children from their lands into somewhere else to get educated. So if we go to the next one, this is some, uh, all these numbers that are from the annual reports with Indian Affairs. So this is kind of just a 10-year, 20-year segment of what happened between 1880 and 1920. These years, really not a lot happens because Indigenous people rejected the Indian Day Schools in Ontario, and they refused to send their kids. But there's a couple important things that kind of set the groundwork for what happened. So there's fixed $47 per capita yearly funding that would be in place until the 1950s, from 1879 to 1950s. And just to put that in perspective, by the 1950s, the per capita per student that the government was paying for settler children was over $150, so it stayed at this $47 rate for almost 75 years, which is really shocking once you understand some of the other problems that came out of that. And that as a result of underfunding, there would be unqualified teachers and poor schooling conditions. So you can see on the bar here with the attendance, it pretty much stays the same. Only about 1,300 kids were actually going to school in, in Ontario during this time period. So if we go to the next uh, slide... 
So this is a mandatory attendance in Indian day schools. So if you remember what Carolyn Bennett said, she said 1920, and that's when they're compensating people because in 1920, the government under Duncan Campbell Scott implemented mandatory attendance. So that's why they believe they should only have to pay the compensation after that mandatory attendance thing. But again, there's still enough funding and resulting in really low quality of education. But as you can see by this graph here, the attendance just immediately starts shooting up after 1921, and it just continues and continues to rise as the RCMP and different government officials force indigenous children to go to day schools or the residential schools. So we go to the next kind of final phase that I've been interpreting is the 1951 to 1972 Indian day schools and inter integration. So after the post-war period, there's a lot of push for indigenous people to have their own rights, and there was a special committee in 1947 that kind of changed the Indian Act in 1951 that allowed indigenous children to go to public schools rather than just a federal Indian day school or residential school. But as you can see, it never really slowed down the attendance. It just kind of shoots up after the baby boom. And then at this time, too, the government switched their priorities into the 1960s scoops, which would take 11,000 indigenous children from their homes. Instead of sending them to school, they would send them to a white family or a settler family to be educated in that way. So it's kind of a biased number in that they did allow integration, but it wasn't really the integration that indigenous people really wanted. Um, if we go to the next one, so this is kind of just an overview from pre-contact to 1972 of dif the, the different stages and how they went through them. Um, it ends in 1972 for a few reasons. One of them is that our access to data has been completely cut off for the last 50 years for personal information, as well as the failure of the federal government to actually record any data after 1972. So if we go to the next slide, I'll just say that from 1972 till today, it's still the fight for self-governance. Uh, you can see that in the protests that are going on today, but in 1972, the Indian control of Indian education, um, a lot of indigenous groups started forming together and protesting the control of education, saying they should have control of education, and that has been a long withstanding fight that is still ongoing. But if you can see here, in 1988, they did an assessment of where the indigenous education was in the country, and they found that First Nations graduation rate was only 20% in 1988, compared to the 75% at the Canadian average. So that report was really scathing, but again, it really didn't do that much. It took another 20 years in the publication of the Truth and Reconciliation Report for the Anishinaabek Nation Education Agreement, which has 26 First Nations that have been involved in that. And while they do have some control of the education now, it is still, if you want to go to university, you have to pass a provincial test, so those standards are still in place today. So, and this is an ongoing legacy I'd just like to talk about, is that the fail failure of the federal government to adequately collect data on a lot of important uh, markers that we can understand education. So this was a report by the Auditor General last year, and it found that um, the federal government did not keep enough records for people on living on reserves, and it was incomplete on factors like education, income and health, indigenous services, and has also failed to attract socioeconomic gaps between on-reserve and off-reserve people. And as well, graduation rates for First Nations are still 27% lower than the average Canadian population. So Indian day schools operated in almost every reserve in Ontario, and we've never done a hist historical study of these uh, schools. So my research intends to interview survivors and see what they experienced in these schools and how that has impacted their life. If you go to this link here at ArcGIS, which is a software, you can explore all the Indian day schools that we have documented and then see if you kind of live near one and if you want to learn more about them. But that's pretty much it, I think. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to say one
Brittany Jungiat, my birthday was on Saturday. Got to get the guitar on, we got to hear any guitar on, and then I got away on Stanley Queens University. So my name is Brittany Macbeth. I am of mixed ancestry. Um, my Mohawk roots come from my mom's side. Um, I'm from Niagara Mohawk territory, and my Scottish roots come from my dad's side. Um, I sit with the Wolf Clan, and I'm a student here at Queens University. I did my undergrad here, so. I've been, this is my seventh year at Queens, I'm never leaving. <laughs> and today I'm going to be talking to you about a little side project that I did. Um, it has, like, it's like related to my master's and it's related to my interests, but um, it's, it's something to do with, I guess, what I'm pursuing in my degrees here. Um, so you can go to the next slide. So what I'm going to be talking about is the idea behind the project, how it came about, the theory, the workshop itself. Um, the talking circle that we had, uh, the findings, the sustainability plan funding, and the continuation of workshops. So how it came to be was I have an established relationship already with a couple of the staff members at a public school, a northern kind of more rural public school, um, and 25% of their students identify as Indigenous students. And so the idea for this culturally based lacrosse workshop came from one of the students themselves and in an introductory activity that the teacher held at the beginning of the year asking students about their expectations and maybe the wishes that they had for the year. One of the students had written that they wished that they had a lacrosse team at the school. And so the teacher knew that I previously worked with Right to Play here in Kingston and that I did lots of lacrosse workshops in schools and so she asked me if I would be willing to come to their school to bring lacrosse to the students because she couldn't necessarily create a team but she could at least bring the experience of lacrosse to her classroom during that year. So the theory behind the idea. So historically the inclusion of Indigenous people in sport was to keep in line with government uh, policies of cultural assimilation. And so within schooling bodies such as the residential school system and Indian day school system that you just heard about from Jackson, sport has been positioned often as a salvation for students. Um, and so for many of the students at these schools, sport and play may very well have been one of their only positive experiences. However, in this way, sport is used as a tool for retention to keep the students and their families interested in attending the school. And this message of sport as a salvation through many of these images were used as propaganda to advertise a lot of the good work that was being done at residential schools. In the mean, or sorry, meanwhile, the sporting activities were just another way in which assimilation was imposed, serving to further the abolishment of indigenous physical activity and sporting practices. And so perhaps the most powerful way to reclaim space in this way is by making classroom instruction more congruent with the cultural values, uh, the cultural value systems of a diverse student population. Um, there's many ethnographic studies that have demonstrated that culturally responsive education, as defined by Gay in 2002, as using the cultural knowledge, prior experiences, frames of reference and performance styles of ethnically diverse students to make learning more relevant and effective for them. And so using this culturally responsive education can result in stronger student connectedness with schools, it can reduce behavior problems, and also enhance learning overall. So kind of taking these 
perspective of, of physical activity from an indigenous kind of grounding, and then also using culturally relevant pedagogy in the classroom, I sought to bring the students at this school a physical activity experience that was also presented through a culturally relevant lens. Okay, so the execution of this workshop, the beginning of the workshop was to ultimately situate lacrosse as a sport in a way that the students had never experienced before. How many of you in this room have heard of the sport lacrosse? Yes. You've maybe seen a game, you've maybe played it yourself, maybe played some catch. How many of you can say that you are well versed in the origin of lacrosse and the current significance of the sport lacrosse? A lot less. So, and there's, there is a very strategic reason why that is. And so, I brought sort of the history of lacrosse through um, some storytelling and some timeline activities for the students so they got to see, you know, the first kind of documentations of lacrosse through Jesuit um, recordings and journals and things like that, and then also the point in history where indigenous peoples were no longer allowed to play lacrosse while um, settlers were able to form their own teams and continue playing um, this game. And so they kind of rearranged these timeline activities the way they thought history went. And then we talked about that and we talked about um, some surprising things that came up for the students. And we also did a storytelling activity where we got to reflect on the significance of the game. And that led into the athlete code of conduct that we created. Because one thing that came up was actually from teachers, like other teachers in the school who were... Um, I guess voicing concerns about bringing lacrosse to the students because it's a very violent game and the students are just going to like get hurt and the purpose of lacrosse is to beat on each other, things like that. And so words like savage and tomahawk and things were used by staff members. So it's like, yeah, so this was really important to situate the actual significance of lacrosse um, as the medicine game. Um, and the creator's game, and that when we're playing this, we're not out to hurt each other. Um, and so the students created a code of conduct where they made commitments to each other on how they were going to be conducting themselves during the physical and kinesthetic part of the workshop where they actually got to pick up a stick and play the sport or um, learn some skills. And so I, start, I started uh, by showing them this video as well, which is... Um, part one of four, you don't have to play it, it's like it's longer than I actually have time to talk today. Mm -hmm. So, but if you do want to check it out, you just YouTube the medicine game and a uh, four part series will come up and it's really great and inspiring. Next slide. Okay, and then so this part of the workshop was the like skills and drills part where we learned everything from how to scoop the ball into your stick to how to carry the ball in your stick, um, the different ways you can protect the ball, passing it to each other, um, and then shooting it on net, and then kind of bringing those skills all together with like a scrimmage. Um, yeah. And so there's a couple of pictures of us doing the workshop, and this is this, oh, this is the student who brought the idea and who kind of made this whole thing possible. And so, Part of this activity was a talking circle, and this project didn't have to have a research component at all. 
Um, but when I brought the idea to the staff, asking them, you know, if if we did do something, what kind of information would be useful um, to you moving forward? You know, if you could ask the students something that would be useful to you guys, what would it be? Um, and the answer was that if we could somehow capture the experiences of these students, that moving forward, this information would be beneficial for the school and the staff um, to like in hopes that it would inform future applications of this culturally responsible uh, education model. So and I'm going to share with you kind of what we found in the talking circle or what came up in the talking circle. And so the main topics of discussion based on the questions were around what the students perceived of the meaning of culture and then also uh, learning about sport through an indigenous perspective and, and their experience in that. So the five main themes that came up were around identity, um, and the other theme was being critical of current curriculum, um, learning outcomes, student experience, and then also student recommendations. So the following slides, I'm going to zoom in on each of the five um, kind of main themes. So within identity, the students and how they described their cultural identity involved kind of these these uh, six yeah six. Uh, sub-themes of ethnicity, spirituality, beliefs, uh, that it's something that's unique for everyone, something that's a choice, um, and then also talking about internal versus external presentations of culture um, and how you, or I guess what makes up culture um, for somebody. And so a couple key quotes, you can go to the next one, a couple key quotes from this one was, um, it's what you believe in and who you choose to be as a person. And then another one was, uh, what the culture is based off of is normally invisible, like it's just spiritual. And these, just a, a bit of a context, were intermediate students, so they're, they're definitely in a position where they can start like really thinking about these uh, really cool topics, kind of like advanced topics, but yeah. Um, so with being critical of the current curriculum, something that came up in the talking circle was uh, the, the students themselves actually questioning what they had been learning like previously and that um, the marginalized and privileged voices that are coming out and what they're learning in the classroom and how uh, maybe the, the narrative that they're hearing about all the time that is kind of so different than the one that they had just heard is a more privileged, it comes from a more privileged voice and they're seeing that this marginalized voice is missing in what they're learning in the curriculum. And so sub-themes of oppression and <coughs> truth and kind of feeling like things are being hidden from them came up. Um, so some key quotes, it kind of gives you like the whole picture. Like some cultures think that they're perfect in every way and they're probably like one of the biggest burdens still. I was like, whoa, <laughs> he's grade eight, so like they know stuff. Um, and then the next one was, it's hard to kind of relate to history by only seeing one side of it and learning only one side of it. So realizing that maybe the current narrative of history isn't the uh, only one, right? And so some learning outcomes that the students described from participating in this workshop, um, I kind of, I group them into direct learning outcomes or things that they actually like tangibly did and then also indirect ones that they described that may be um, kind of like internal or just like residual effects of this workshop 
And so direct ones were increasing physical, oh, go back. Yeah, increasing physical literacy. Well, I guess you can read it so we can move on. I don't even know how much time I've been talking for. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, we can take a look at these. Increasing physical literacy skills. They talked about, um, you know, I learned how to scoop the ball on my stick. I learned how to like actively do these skills, these physical skills. Um, the purpose and significance of lacrosse was something they directly learned from the workshop. Uh, some of the history of lacrosse, they learned new things. A lot of them talked about it was very novel for them. Um, and then also new in that the meaning of sport had changed where it kind of grew from something that I just do to like uh, outside and like get my heart rate up, right? It was, there was um, more layers to sport than they had previously kind of perceived. And then indirect outcomes were increased self-efficacy, uh, self-confidence building, teamwork, relationship building with their peers, setting goals and ambitions, building physical activity skills that can be kind of transferred to other sports, um, and then room for more learning and wanting to advance. So some key quotes from that was, I think it would be good to recommend to others because you really can't get embarrassed about it. And I think that was because everybody in the class was experiencing a new sport for the first time. Everybody was on the same playing field. And sometimes, like in phys ed class, you know, you've got your athletes, you've got your people who love sport, you, then you've got some people who maybe, you know, that's not the, the gift that they carry, right? Um, and maybe they don't enjoy gym class as much. But since everyone was on the same playing field during this workshop, they felt that they couldn't get embarrassed about it. They felt that since everybody was kind of a little, you know, there was nobody who had stellar skills, that it was a place, a safe place to experience um, physical activity. And so the next one, you never know if you might want to keep playing lacrosse and carry it on throughout, or carry on throughout it, and maybe go to like the major league level. Um, so some students found that, you know, trying lacrosse for the first time, they thought, wow, I could really continue playing this. I really enjoy it. It was a sport that they found they wanted to continue with and they were kind of like having those aspirations and envisioning those desires to keep playing. And the last one, um, you get to like have teamwork and you get to know people better. So yeah, it's kind of speaks for itself that they felt that they were building teamwork skills and that they were getting to know people in their class a little bit better. And the last, oh no, this is the second last one about student experience and um, how they describe the experience Fun was a big one. Um, diverse physical education curriculum was another kind of sub-theme there. Outdoor play, drinking water, and active learning were things that came up about their experience in the workshop. So a couple key quotes was, um, I had a lot of fun learning about it, especially considering we were outside, actually doing it instead of being in the classroom, just reading about it. Um, and then the other one was, I like learning something different, like instead of your usual gym class. And so. I'm sure we all know what a usual gym class looks like. It's probably some dodgeball. Like, you know what I mean? So I find in schools, uh, phys ed classes are sometimes a difficult subject to teach, especially if teachers don't have resources for that, um, and then kind of resort to their, you know, the, the games and activities that they're comfortable facilitating. And so sometimes new activities or new experiences aren't explored in uh, phys ed class, and this was, an experience that felt different than their usual gym class. And then they also enjoyed being outside and seeing that something that they learned in the classroom, like how um, subjects of history 
could also be uh, go hand in hand with physical activity and phys ed class. And so their recommendations were that there was more lacrosse and then more resources and equipment because, and then so this leads to the next. Um, so one thing that could have improved the day is even more playing time and that it would have been better if we could have equipment because I came with the equipment and as soon as I left, the equipment left with me, right? So it's my sustainability plan. I'm like, how can I make sure that these students <laughs> keep playing lacrosse after I leave? Why do I have to be the keeper of equipment um, and be the gatekeeper to this experience? So moving on, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta find some funding. So I gotta get these guys some equipment and maybe do some more workshops and provide some teachers with resources. Like I can just explain all of those drills that I did, how to kind of facilitate them a little manual. And so last year I applied for a Jumpstart Community Development Grant very, very simple process. Like It's such a straightforward application. If you ever want to apply to Jumpstart Community uh, Development Grant, I definitely recommend it. Um, and so we were successfully awarded like just under $10,000, which is crazy, but I was able to get them some equipment. And last, yeah, this was last June, um, additional workshops were had at the school, so instead of just the one class experiencing this, all of the intermediate students from grades six to eight were able to participate in a workshop, and so it continued on with that two-eyed scene approach to lacrosse, where they got to know about the history and significance, and then learned the physical kind of um, skills from Sean Evans and his brother Turner Evans, who own the company Nationwide Lacrosse, and they're both national lacrosse players. They're great. Um, yeah, and so I think that's about it. You want to go? Thanks, Brittany. So I'm Kim Bouchenhouse. I'm the geographer in the group, and I, I, even my mother keeps asking me, why are you studying this in geography? And um, I guess there are a few reasons. First of all, geography is very deeply implicated in colonialism. Um, geographers were the ones who went out and made the maps and um, told settlers where to find the water and the resources and all of those kinds of things. Um, geography, as it has been taught for a long time, is seen by many scholars as one of the primary tools of sustaining and supporting colonialism over time in the way that we learn about our geography and our land uh, and our space uh, is very colonial in its, in its, and sustaining of colonialism in its um, methods and its content. And also because education schools and, and the education system can, is, is really a space. It can be a space that continues to um, uh, reinforce domination and oppression, or it can be a space that challenges some of those dominant discourses and changes them over time. So there are lots of good reasons to study this uh, within a geography department. And in fact, uh, my supervisor, Anne Godlewska, has um, had a long-standing um, research project that I'll talk about in a, little, in a little bit to talk about the knowledge that um, we carry as settlers. So... Um, I am the settler in this group as well. Um, my gaze in my research is on settlers, primarily on non-Indigenous teachers, and their teaching of primarily non-Indigenous students. So if you can just go to the next slide. 
Uh, what I will do is talk a little bit about what's happening in Ontario because that's where my research is focused, uh, how I went about gathering my data. A couple of reasons for optimism and then looking at resistance, resistance of teachers to teach in a different way and to, and to um, um, push back against some of those dominant discourses and a couple of thoughts I have about future research. So when the um, Truth and Reconciliation made its recommendations in 2015, the Ontario Liberal government uh, produced this document that I'm sure many of you are teachers here or, or in the Department of Education are aware of, called The Journey Together. And it was the uh, Ontario provincial government's uh, range of commitments that they were making to follow up on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Some of those commitments, a number of them related specifically to education, and a couple of them that I've noted here. First of all, the commitment that the uh, government made was to mandatory Indigenous content in teacher education programs. And secondly, uh, or another one was mandatory curriculum for all students on residential schools, the legacy of colonialism, uh, the rights and responsibilities of Canadians as a whole as treaty people. And as most of you know, phase one of that program uh, was implemented in September 2018. So there was new curriculum introduced for grades four to six social studies and for grades seven and eight history, I believe it was. Uh, and that was implemented in 2018. Moving on to the next one. Um, what happened when the uh, government changed within about, I think it was 10 days of the election of the um, Conservative government in Ontario, phase two of this program was cancelled. So, um, and it, quite at the last minute, people were ready to come in. It was summer, as you probably remember, July, people were on their way to um, do the work to develop the next level of curriculum changes, which would have been social studies grades one to three, um, and um, history, sorry, geography and civics in, in high school courses, as well as some other mandatory courses. Uh, so all uh, further um, consultations with First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people were, were halted at that time, and um, the government did, however, come out with its, its changes about nine months later, uh, announcing, uh, out of the blue, presumably, that um, high school courses would no with this content would no longer be mandatory, number one, and that, uh, well, would no longer be mandatory, and that there would be no further uh, development of curriculum, although there was some 9 to 12 curriculum released, um, but it was not a result of the same kind of consultation process that had gone on for phase one. So you can imagine that with all of the other cutbacks uh, to education under this government, the likelihood of taking courses that are not mandatory is significantly reduced. So, however, wow, you're way ahead of me. That's good. That's okay. Go ahead. Um, so there have, however, been some curriculum changes. And whenever you introduce new curriculum, it begs the question, how are we preparing teachers to teach that new curriculum? And so that's the focus of my research, is on teacher education. And it is built off of Dr. Goodlevska's uh, long-standing study where they measure what is known and understood in the attitudes of students coming out of high school, so as a measure of what they've learned K-12. And then uh, a, the same study given to graduating fourth-year students out of universities as a measure of what they've learned in university. So this study has been done over the past decade in Ontario, in Newfoundland and Labrador, 
uh, in Manitoba and in British Columbia. So there's quite a broad range of information, particularly on students coming in. Uh, in 2017, 2018, uh, all graduating students from uh, Queen's University were surveyed um, with respect to a knowledge, using a knowledge test and survey that has been developed over time, over the course of this project, with a broad range, over 300 of co-designers, um, many, most of them, I would say, uh, Indigenous knowledge keepers, community members, scholars, etc., educators. And so what they did was they shared with me the data from the teacher education component of that, and I went on and interviewed some of those teachers. So um, the survey resulted in that Dr. Gudlewska did with her team in, as you can see there, uh, almost 300 students in bo between both consecutive and uh, concurrent education who responded to the, 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 the survey. And I uh, added a question to the survey of consecutive education students and saying, would you be willing to speak to me and have an interview with me? And so from that, I interviewed 18 uh, graduating teacher candidates. Um, they were, uh, there were, 10 of them were intermediate senior, nine of, eight of them were uh, primary junior. I did one hour semi-structured interviews of the pool of folks that I interviewed. Um, 17 were settlers, one was Métis. I was looking from the broad pool of consecutive education students. I wasn't looking at the Aboriginal teacher education program where students who have a particular interest in this. So I was looking at broad teacher candidates overall. So there is some encouraging information. This is from the survey data. So part of the survey measured knowledge through a multiple choice question. There were a number of multiple choice questions. There were other questions as well in the survey. Uh, but what you can see here is when you look across faculties of graduating students uh, from Queen's University, you can see that the, those who scored the highest on the knowledge portion of the, the, question, of the test uh, were education students. So 70, they had 77% and 76% correct answers, if you will. Um, not exactly A students, but inching, inching up there into B-plus territory. Um, <laughs> arts and science, <laughs> arts and science uh, was 74%. You can see that drops down to 64.8% in engineering. The, the faculty that had the worst, if you want to look at it that way, performance in terms of the knowledge portion of this test was business. Um, however, the good news is that at least teacher candidates come at graduating from uh, teacher education program here uh, did have some level of knowledge. If you go on to the next slide. And, and amongst the students that I interviewed, the graduating teacher candidates, there was a lot of positive comments. I had 17 were very much um, interested and positive about this. I mean, there is some recruitment bias there because obviously people who agreed to take the, to be interviewed by me had some level of interest. One person um, chose to be interviewed because they really completely disagreed with it, which is fine. Um, so what you can see is sometimes they looked to their own poor education. I think it's great. Uh, when I look back on my own education, uh, I know that I got so little of that along the way. So some people, it was coming from their own point of view. Some people thought it's important. These are quotations from the interviews. Um, there was a, a student who talked about it being a new beginning. Um, I think it's great that they're finally starting to open up a little bit more, and I'm excited to see what directions this could lead us in. 
you have a, a large group of students who still uh, are interested, but it's coming from a very colonial place. Like the quote there in the middle, I think it's awesome. It's something that we, we need to be proud of, those Canadians, because Indigenous people live within our borders. So you can still see, like, I'm keen on it, but it's sort of taking a multicultural uh, kind of a stance there. Um, go on to the next one. The concerning thing was that teacher candidates, however, demonstrated the same levels of ignorance and attitudes as many other students. So you can see from these quotes, these are some of the teacher education students uh, and the kinds of things that they talked about. Some of them were just confused. Inuit people descend from the north and have European influence. Um, there's just sort of outright racism. This was, by the way, in response to a question in the survey that asked, name the three most important things that you know about First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. So one of the three most important things that this student knew about First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people was that they continue to whine about things that we did not cause. They're a large group of respondents who talk about benefits. They see that Indigenous people, they believe that Indigenous people are the recipients of benefits. Um, how they square that with Indigenous realities is, is a mental leap we don't need to talk about here, but um, Indigenous peoples live on reserves and are provided services through the federal government. Um, one person felt that the most important thing that they knew about Indigenous peoples was that, was that they're brave, um, and also very much of a setting of, of any kinds of challenges in the past. Historically, these beliefs, governance, and value systems have been ignored, ignored and abused by other groups. So it's kind of like nothing really to do with us, but you know we've ignored this stuff in the past. So if you could go on to the next one. One of the things that many scholars have written about is the challenge of resistance in teaching teachers, uh, in-service teachers, as well as teacher candidates. And you can see this quote here. Um, by Higgins and Cordovec from some of their um, research. Much educational research reports that when teacher candidates and in-service teachers are presented with difficult knowledge that threatens the invisibility of Eurocentrism, that demands an interrogation of white privilege, and are asked teachers to position themselves historically in relation to Indigenous peoples, the overwhelming response of white teachers is resistance. The overwhelming response. That's my emphasis that I added there. So one of the challenges is to see when these students are graduating from their teacher education programs, what kind of a job did we do in educating them and providing them with experiences to help them to overcome that resistance? So just going on to the next one. What I, I did in my interviews with graduating teacher candidates, these are all teacher candidates who have just finished, literally the week before, their mandatory course on Introduction to Aboriginal Studies for Teachers. So one of the things that I asked them, just wait one sec. Okay, you can go to the first one. There you go. Uh, is I asked them a series of questions about Indigenous, you could call them Indigenous topics. Um, and the question that I asked was, if you were teaching this topic, what would be the one or two most important things you would want your students to take away from your teaching on that? So I asked them, for example, what would you want students to take away from teaching about Isle No More, protests, blockades, those kinds of things? Go on to the next one. I asked them about treaties. If you were doing a lesson or a, um, a unit on treaties, what would be the one or two things you would want your students to take away from that teaching? Next one. I asked them about <coughs> residential schools. 
What would you want your students to take away? One or two most important things about residential schools. Next one. I asked them about land claims. Um, sadly, the pictures, some of the pictures there could be taken last week, but these were not. Um, you know, what, did you, what, what would you want students to take away from teaching about Oka, Ipperwash, Caledonia? First of all, I think one student knew about any of those. Um, next one. And I asked them about the Indian Act. If you were teaching a unit, age appropriate, about the Indian Act, what would you want your students to take away? And the thing that struck me most, my kids when they were little read this series of books by Lemony Snicket, maybe some of you read them here, called A Series of Unfortunate Events. And this is how I would characterize the comments about all of these topics for these teacher education students. Can you go on to the next one? There was no connection made by a single one of these students to any of these issues and colonialism. Zero. They were just like a series of unfortunate events. They did not connect them to a process, to a structure, to any kind of, um, well, any kind of a process or structure that they understood uh, here in Canada. Can you go on to the next one? There was one student who said here, and you can, this is a great, I think, a great um, explanation of colonialism. I think the primary idea for students to take a baby would be the hierarchical structure that informs all of these crises that have happened. The hierarchy that's implemented in history through the government. I think it's based on things like race. I think it's based on things like gender and all these things. I think we just place people in this hierarchy and it's always the people who are the least privileged that are at the bottom, right? But she didn't know what it was called. It's like this hierarchy thing. I think it's government, but she, the, the idea that this is a colonial structure, that this is colonialism, did not occur to her. Um, one of the ways, one of the things that I think were particularly emblematic of how little students understood about colonialism in general and how... Um, disconnected they were, was their understanding of the Indian Act, which arguably is one of the foundational pieces of legislation that enabled the settlement of Canada. And so I thought it would be helpful to look at the kinds of responses that I got when I asked students, uh, graduating teacher candidates, remember last week was my last day of my course on Indigenous uh, topics. What what, what they would want students that they were teaching to take away from information about the Indian Act. So, you know, you have somebody who says, well, trading, is trading part of it? I, I don't really know. You had one student who said, I mean, it's not funny, but I'm trying to remember, is that the one with Louis Riel? Um, you have this student in the middle who, by the way, I also asked all of these folks, how confident do you feel when you leave here as a teacher that you will be able to teach about indigenous topics in your classrooms. And this guy rated himself nine out of 10. However, a question about the Indian Act threw him into quite a bit of a panic. Oh my God, uh, long, long pause. Um, well, to be honest, I, I just didn't really ever study anything about the Indian Act. I don't know anything about it. Um, some people thought it was a treaty. So this is something that actually 
indigenous people apparently sat down and discussed and came up with in terms of a treaty with the government. Um, and then you again have this whole idea of benevolence. So what this student would want her students, what this teacher candidate would want her students to take away uh, from information on the uh, Indian Act was that this was something that the government was trying to do to help indigenous people. They were trying to create this fairness by creating this act. They were trying to provide people with status, even if you were only 1 16th, I think there was something about that. So what I would teach is that they were trying to create fairness for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. These are really problematic ideas coming from graduating teacher candidates. Go to the next slide. In the 18 hours of interviews I did, only two students ever mentioned the word colonialism. These nine, nine graduating teacher candidates who said the word colonial, I did a search, they were all repeating a question that I asked later on in the interview. So out of 18 hours of their own, uh, in terms of their own words, only two students ever mentioned the words colonialism and none of them in the context of any of those events that I've talked about. So this is a barrier, right? If we're talking about barriers here, this is a barrier to pushing back against dominant discourses. Um, Glenn Coulthard said this about the whole idea of placing things in the past. He said, in these situations, reconciliation itself becomes temporally framed as the process of individually and collectively overcoming the harmful legacy, the thing that happened in the past, uh, in the wake of this past abuse, while leaving the present structure of colonial rule largely unscathed. So one of the challenges, I think, that we have with this is that not only is this being placed in the past, but colonialism is being, in fact, erased even from the past for these students. And if you look at the curriculum, actually, there is very little mention ever of the world colonialism. I mean, it's never in there. So this is a, at least as far as the, the, um, the curricular analysis that we've done up to 2015. So I, it remains to be seen when we dig into what the recent changes have been. But um, this is not a mistake. This is not just happening. Um, there are many ways that teachers resist. And I, I could go into other ones. One of the other ones is talking about the perfect stranger. This is not something I can teach because I'm not Indigenous, so it's not my culture. What if I offend somebody? It's controversial. I don't want any conflict in my class. Um, so there are many ways that teachers resist, but I think this is, is one of the key things that we certainly need to overcome in our teacher education um, programs. Next one. One of the things that I thought about in terms of this kind of resistance is whether reframing some of the ways that we talk about these concepts would be helpful. I don't know that. I have researched only with teacher candidates. My research going forward will involve a broader range of teacher candidates as well as in-service teachers to understand what training and experiences they have had to help them push back against some of those uh, dominant discourses. But I do wonder whether what it says in the, in the TRC recommendation 63.1 is that they call upon educators to provide curriculum on, as you can see there on the left, residential schools, treaties, Aboriginal people's historical and contemporary contributions to Canada. This sets us up perfectly for people who say, like, why am I teaching about 
those people. That's not about me. And I wonder whether if we reframe that as saying, we need to provide curriculum on Canada as a settler colonial state. Canada, which is supposedly, even for non-Indigenous people, our country. Uh, and what, what is a settler colonial state? What is its past? What is its present? How are we a settler colonial state? Whether that would um, be one of the many things that might be able to help people reframe their thinking about this. So that's it for me. You can go on to the next one because I know people will be fascinated with my references. Um, <laughs> so that's all I have to say. I'll sit down and we can go from there. Yeah, so I'm a mixed Anishinaabe and settler heritage, so that's really foundational to my identity and then also my research. So the, I didn't talk about it, but the approach I use is two-eyed seeing, which is kind of this new methodology that's developing that uses indigenous kind of ways of being and western ways of being at the same time, and that can be a lot of tension between that of what to pick and what to do. Um, I've kind of distilled that into the three R's is what I call it. So reading, <coughs> writing, and arithmetic of history. If you think of history, there's a lot of reading of other people's stuff that's come in the past that you have to kind of synthesize. Uh, writing of your own writing, how you're going to interpret what you read. And then the arithmetic is really what has to do with the math and kind of the, the numbers that are assigned to people and you have to kind of make an argument about that. And then on the other side, it's the three R's of like indigenous research. So that's reciprocity, respect, and relationships. And those are defined by each study and how you're going to approach your research. And it becomes like a key part of how you're going to approach it. But I think there are issues for people that are working in Western institutions and trying to bring indigenous ways of thought into these institutions. They're very old. Queens actually was founded in the same year the first residential school was founded. So those histories are actually pretty connected. And if you think of who has graduated from Queens, it's all kind of the people that went on to Ottawa and made pretty terrible decisions over the past 150 <laughs> years, to be honest. So there is some history there that you have to kind of overcome. I think the main big difference of what I've encountered so far is the problems with ethics and how that works when you're working with an indigenous community and how that works when you come to the ethics boards here at Queens and what they're looking for. And those two things, when they don't line up, can cause a lot of headaches and problems that I'm still kind of going through. Like I've been working on my ethics since October and I still haven't got official approval yet from both sides of the parties because they both have to kind of agree on what happens. So I guess that's mostly my experience so far, but. So what's your question? Identity, is that how connects to your research or your whole experience being a student, a graduate student? I think we were talking about yesterday too. Yeah. yeah, so primarily the research that I've been involved in is community-based participatory research. So your identity is the first thing that you kind of grapple with or acknowledge, you know, when you're doing this kind of research, starting by taking a look at your positionality. Um, and so 
I've definitely had to do that um, before like going into the community and doing things like this. So I guess um, maybe an assumption that's made sometimes is that if you're an indigenous student, you've got like a free pass to do indigenous research and go into community and you're an insider, right? But um, I can say that I feel, or I conduct myself, I, tr I try to make sure I conduct myself almost as an outsider, even though I do have some sort of like connections that other people may not have based on their experiences and my experiences. So yeah, reflecting on the times that you are an insider, but also when you're an outsider as well, and that just because you uh, are an Indigenous student or have connection to community already doesn't mean that you don't have to do that relationship building process still. Um, and so, yeah, there's a little bit about that, and then kind of like in the institution itself, I find myself reflecting a lot on just like education and what has brought me here. Um, and the fact that like post-secondary studies for me has always been something that was promoted like in my family, even though I'm the first to go. It's something that's been important and kind of I always pictured myself coming to university. And then, um, so actually a little more context, I grew up quite disconnected to culture. Um, and university was actually the place where I started to explore that part of my identity and it was very much a journey of self-discovery. Um, so it's coming here and kind of being active at Four Directions throughout my undergrad and starting to work with Indigenous youth through Right to Play that the learning experience was kind of reciprocal with the youth. And so my experiences with that have brought me to this moment in doing masters and doing community-based research with Indigenous youth around diabetes prevention and physical activity and things like that. So yeah, my identity is like really tied up into my work. Um, it, my identity has kind of brought me to this point in time. So I think that there is no way to become disconnected. Like there's no way to disconnect the work that you do as a student and your identity really. Did you want to talk also about some of the expectations that are put on you as Indigenous students within your departments, within the university? Yeah, sure. I'll talk about that. So um, I guess one of the things about if you self-identify as Indigenous is that you kind of become the Indigenous face of your faculty or your building. So you get, which is kind of good and bad. There's like trade-offs to that in that you get a lot of opportunities, but also it kind of becomes tiring to be always the one doing extra stuff. Um, so it's like there's lots of benefits I think a part of that but also there's also mental tolls on that if you're always talking for my for, for my instance I guess I always talk about kind of the depressing Indian day school story which can kind of be, be a lot and adds up over time and it's just kind of these things we have to carry with us where some other students maybe not have to or they do it in different ways I think also we're tapped a lot to do stuff like this event or like other sorts of events that I think are beneficial for us overall but again cause more strain and kind of stress on graduate students, especially if there's only one or two in your faculty and it's not really spread out the wealth. I know a lot of other faculties only have like one indigenous person and they become the face of the entire kind of faculty that's indigenous. And especially at schools such as Queens and stuff where it's not as diverse as it could be, I think we really need to hopefully it have more people in here to make more of a discussion and it's kind of shared that burden. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know if any of you guys were at the talk that Jan Hill did this past Tuesday, but something that she had said during her talk when she was describing the fact that like she was very involved in advocacy work, but she didn't want to be political anymore. And this is something I've always said is like, I hate politics. Like, why can't we just all get along and we can do like fun things? Why do we always have to be advocating and be fighting that uphill battle? And she had said that one of her mentors told her, well, you know what? Like, you're born political, and that, you know, just being born an indigenous person within this colonial nation state, like, is inherently political. There's really no way you can escape it. So it's just that extra, like, hat that you wear of always having to, like, yeah, fight the uphill battle, advocate, and just, yeah, I continue think too, like, do, fighting for really, those things, and yeah. I think it's related to that, that a lot of people think Indigenous people are all just one group as well, so I'll get fielded tons of different questions when I only know a very narrow, specific cultural group. So that's also kind of another burden that you have to face is that you become kind of the face of Indigenous stuff, so if you mess up or you say something wrong, it reflects back on the community that you're trying to represent properly. So again, adds some more tension, especially at a Western institution. Yeah, and something actually that clicks in my mind now is from the presentation beforehand and something that settlers will often like voice that they struggle with is you know whether they should be the ones who are doing this work and like I'm a non-indigenous person so do I have enough knowledge um, and so there's an assumption there too that indigenous people or people who self-identify have that knowledge already too but I went to the exact same public school as you. I did not grow up connected to culture and learning about how like everything played out in history. I began to understand why that was. Why don't I know anything about my Mohawk ancestry? Like why don't I know anything about the culture? And there, like there's a really specific reason why I don't know that. My mom didn't know that. My grandpa didn't know that. Because my great grandmother was punished for those things, right? So it's you can't just assume that the indigenous people in the room are gonna have that worldview because that worldview was stripped. That worldview was destroyed, it was very successful, and it may be our generation or a couple generations before that are just picking up those pieces, right? So we're all doing this work of, of learning and unlearning, whether, you know, no matter like what ethnicity you were born to, you know? Yeah. 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 And so everybody's work is valuable, that's what I yeah, so for me, um, obviously, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I, the gaze of my research is on non-Indigenous people is because I am a settler. Um, I'm your, what I'm sure Stephen Harper would have called your old stock, you know, person who comes from, somebody was saying this morning, England, Ireland, Scotland, you know, fruit farmers in the Niagara Belt uh, generations ago. So, um, and also, just by my age, I'm way younger than I look, but still, um, you can imagine how bereft my education was, I mean, you know, 50 years ago. You know, the idea of a land acknowledgement, like it never, ever, ever occurred to me till I was an adult that anyone else really had ever lived here or had any claim to this land ever. Um, so, you know, for me, it's been a long process. Um, lots of people in education talk about there needs to be a crisis. Because when you have practices of ignorance, which settlers do, ways of looking away, ways of not seeing what's right before you, ways of discounting the evidence that is right before you, 
you're unaware of those practices and it takes some sort of a crisis often to sort of jolt you out of that. And you know, I'm grateful that one of those crises for me came when I was quite young. So it's been an ongoing process over many years to, to try to see those things in myself. Um, and one of the reasons that I study non-Indigenous people is because I, that's what I feel comfortable doing. I don't feel comfortable. Um, I, I feel that I, I know what those dominant discourses are. I, I, these are people that I can push back on. Um, but it is, um, you know, not always a positive experience. I think when you're in a settler colonial state, we're in a relationship. So both parties in a relationship need to take responsibility for that relationship. And so I feel that I have a role in that. Uh, but it's it's a roller coaster for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Do we have questions from the floor? Is there any? Yeah. So I really enjoyed everyone's presentation, um, and I really liked what the parallels of settler ignorance went across <coughs> all all three of them quite clearly. Um, and Kim, when you're talking about crisis, I think it's just really interesting um, to frame that idea because in all your presentations, you're talking about <coughs> the need to address that coloniality and that that past view and that ignorance. Um, and I'm curious because this panel is framed under the title of reconciliation, um, which is an exceedingly troubled term, as I'm sure many of us here can reflect, especially over the last few weeks. And so do you feel like that's, that reconciliation as this very state-driven idea is the moment of crisis? Or do you think that future intervention or different terms are where that ignorance can be addressed? That's a good question. We we're going to ask ourselves that question. Um, we didn't make the name of this uh, panel. We just kind of signed up for it. But yeah, I think reconciliation is obviously come, I think, to an end in Canada, especially for Indigenous people and how they understand the term. Um, I think there was a lot of promises that were tied to that, especially after the publication of the TRC and how Trudeau's really been, I guess, championing it and the ways he's like, I, I always think of the one when he like promised Gore Downey and then that's kind of disappeared now after he's gone, which is really depressing. But I think, I don't necessarily think reconciliation as a term of like settlers and indigenous people coming back together and actually following the treaties in the way that their attendant, that belief has gone. I think just the buzzword reconciliation is dead. I, I'm kind of happy about it because I've been sick of reading it on papers and it's just a term that everyone uses and doesn't really mean anything I think anymore. I think it just became something that was overused and then especially over the last few weeks what's happened I think it's really showed that the term was just a political kind of tool used just to kind of say we're doing the right things but not actually doing them so I think hopefully this is not the end I think I relate it back to the spiral again I think we're at a different kind of section of that spiral and hopefully it'll go trend the right way and we'll just have something another word for it but yeah I wish Ted was still here because I would roast him on the title for sure <laughs> Um, so for me, um, I don't think reconciliation, as we, as the government states it, is in any way a crisis for settlers. I think it's a great thing for settlers who want to continue to look away. It's a great way of um, thinking that because we make land acknowledgments and because there's drumming, you know, at some sort of an event. Um, or because Justin Trudeau goes to meet indigenous people on the back of a horse, that somehow we are, well, but it's a classic, right? I, I just think it's, it's a great way of continuing to reinforce practices of ignorance myself. I, I, I have a, 
a challenge with the word reconciliation and with the idea that most settlers have of reconciliation. Like, well, you know, great, we made our we made our apology, we made our apology, we made land acknowledgments, we're done with that, we can all move on. And I I I think that the crisis um, that I'm talking about and that has been researched about, if you look at, for example, teacher education, often the crisis comes in being immersed in an Indigenous community, um, doing service work, um, meeting an Indigenous person, which many urban Canadians don't think they have ever done. Um, it comes with somebody calling you on your privilege that you've never seen. I, I think that crises, like for me, my crisis came when I went and stayed in a residential school as part of an exchange. And I suddenly went, wait a second, like how come, what is happening? Like I, you know, so that was a crisis for me that led me on a big spiraling thing. So I don't, reconciliation and the government's form of it is just a way, I think, of making us all feel good about ourselves and a crisis has to come from taking a course, being immersed, uh, having people challenge you in a really meaningful way. And that's the kind of crisis that I think puts you over into a new world where you have to look through different eyes uh, and ask yourself what your role is in that. I mean, I don't have a fully formed question yet. First of all, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Jackson, keeps on getting blocked yes. up by this. It's a weird. Thank you, all three of you, for, for your presentations. It's really cool to see two people who aren't in the Faculty of Education think deeply and talk about education because it's important and it matters. Um, so, so I appreciate that. I, I'm really struck by the idea of crisis and how that could intersect for teacher education. I think, I mean, I, I can only speak for myself, but I was physically uncomfortable reading those quotes because, like, I'm only, I'm almost 100% certain that these are teacher candidates that I've taught. Muffled it, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, in 2018? Yeah. 2018, yes. So all three of us. We have all TA in that department, so it's very... I taught the history class, which I feel really bad. I'm like, oh. I just, sorry, just on that, I just want to be clear, that is not, in my view, in any way an indictment of the person who teaches that course, because that, I think, is more a reflection of how, how six sessions at the end of your teacher yeah. education cannot yeah. undo yeah. the previous 20 years. So I don't want that to be interpreted. I just need no. to jump in and yeah, say thank, that. Thank anyway. you for saying yeah. that. Yeah. Because yeah. I think, yeah, because I think that, that just seeing those quotes and seeing everything kind of speaks to something that maybe probably a lot of teacher education educators feel, not even just in Queens, probably across Canada, about a very unsettling of, well, what did they actually learn? And I think it's because, I think you're right. I, I think that for a lot of them, they, they don't have that moment of, how am I implicated in this? How am I accountable to it? And when I think back to my crisis moment, because if I look back to when I taught middle school, I don't think I did a great job, to be honest. I think I was way too young. I think I was really inexperienced. And I don't think I had my moment of crisis until probably I came and I started my master's. And it was when I figured out that I am a settler as an immigrant. And that was a weird moment for me because I have always positioned myself as like, woe is me, woman of color, how has Canada done me wrong? And it has done me wrong in many ways, but I am still a settler. And that was my moment of crisis. And I think it was because someone used that language for me, mm -hmm. on me, 
And I think part of the issues that we run into sometimes with teacher education is that we don't use words like settler colonialism a lot. Some of the, in pockets of courses we do, not across the board. We don't use words like critical whiteness studies. We don't use words like anti-racism. And so you reframing, I think it was a 63.1, is that the, the TRC point? That yeah, you, yeah, 63. The reframing is so like how do we, shifting it to settler colonialism rather than like the history or the culture of, of indigenous folks, I think is one of those ways in which we can up our chances of getting people to like get hit by a brick wall. And I think it's because we're too afraid of the language and we need to start owning the language and get people really comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable and engaging with some unlearning because it's true, they are, they are unlearning a lot of stuff that they have been taught to believe and internalize. And then they go out into like their practical placements and then those teachers just reinforce all the bad stuff. And so it's a really messy thing. But I think that if we say there is no shame in you feeling ashamed, like that's an opening. Mm -hmm. I I think. Can I add to that? That I do think that the language that we're using is incredibly important, but it needs to be paired with other structural changes. Yeah. I taught a yeah. course on white privilege at the University yeah. of Saskatchewan when I was doing my master's. And it was like an entire year, and it took a lot of students an entire year to not only hit the wall, but then get over that wall. So I think that if we're just using that different language, but we still have that course that's taught over six or three weeks, whatever it is, students are probably just gonna get angry, they're gonna tune you out, and yeah, it might even that's a fair point. be worse, yeah. arguably. The other thing is that, you know, I've, I had an indigenous person say to me, you know, knock yourself out, your work is completely useless because an education system that is run by a settler state is never going to break down colonial thinking. And I think a lot about that, and I actually do agree that in the world that we're in, you cannot look only to the education system to do that work. So it also takes community groups, it takes, it takes cultural events, it takes literature, it takes many, many other forms. So I see, I mean, education has got us here. We were taught uh, very selectively to believe in ourselves in a certain way, and we all swallowed it. And um, so, it, you know, education can be effective in creating those identities, and so it can, of course, be effective in breaking them down. However, given the power structures, I think that you have to look at education as only one piece of a really broad, broad puzzle, and uh, so, yeah, it's a challenge. I think I can also add to that that, like, I think a lot about education outside of the walls of the school um, that happens every day in communities and interactions between people, and if we talk about education in that way, it has a little bit more power. Yeah, <laughs> and actually, you know, I, I've mentioned this to some people, but I'm working in, I live north of um, uh, Kingston, out there in the woods in your area, in unceded Algonquin territory. And um, we've been running um, a community-based course on indigenous histories in Canada. And so it's it been incredible to me, first of all, how many 80-year-olds, 70-year-olds, 50-year-olds are coming to that course and saying, thank you, I never use my church. I now understand you know, how, you know, how my church has played into this. Use my church for your course. So, you know, in a small community-based way, this is, it's those kinds of, that's, it's still a course, it's education, but it's, it's community-based, it's people who just want to come, and those are the kinds of things that I think 
among others, can help to break down those things. I agree with that too. Um, Alice and I teach a course for adult learners, and it's hopefully this year the third year, but it's run two years successfully with adult learners in the community. Most of them are retired that come in and learn about indigenous cultures, and you see like a complete, I'd say, transformation on how they think, mm -hmm. and especially they now contributed to colonialism. They say that word out, and they have a space to talk about it, so I think doing stuff like that at universities, rather than kind of staying in our ivory towers over, especially in buildings like this, where we don't get outside <laughs> these walls, is I think a boundary we should, especially as universities explore. Um, can I, just a, an observation, um, as someone who has worked in cultural heritage for my entire career and then coming back to school, um, one of the, the things that I see with um, just sort of thinking about the average Canadian and, and broader um, is that many of the people who don't understand what's going on or have knowledge about what's gone on are generally not people who did well in school or took um, history or, you know, and, and especially now we're hearing, I'm hearing, this is my personal experience, comments from people about, um, you know, what rights do people have to block the railway? You know, all that sort of stuff, like just get on with it, get out of the way, get, and I, you know, sort of try to combat that, that conversation with, well, you know, there's this and there's that, and, and it's just a complete, I don't know, it's not even an acknowledgement of anything, it's just we need to get on with our lives type of thing. So I think, you know, how do we, how, how do we get the average person to even have a basic understanding? And, you know, and that's sort of a follow-on from what you know, we've all been saying about going beyond the education system, and Kim, you, you said that, you know, reaching out to the, the public in different ways, and I think that is a huge um, aspect of, and I mean, I don't know how to, to solve that, but I think it's just more about having conversations in any way, in any aspect of, um, in, in many different contexts of, of what, what things could or should be happening. And I mean, I could just sort of blab on for a while about this, but I don't, you know, I don't want to do that. But, but I think it's, it's, it's a much broader thing, and you're absolutely right, beyond, beyond this campus, beyond this community, um, but also, how do you get into the general community? How do you get that, that knowledge and understanding into the general community? Because really, the people who are going to the drumming ceremonies and the talking circles, and it's basically people who already understand You're that there should be yeah. an acknowledgement or a change in the way we think. So it's the other part of the population that how do you get that message to them? You can go on like a Facebook war comment and like start, start some fights. I think two really good comments if you want to make them on Facebook articles is one, you can cite the 1763 Royal Proclamation. There's a really good resource online that shows that all indigenous lands are indigenous lands and then we, the Crown is supposed to sign them if they're going to get that. And then I also like talking about um, hereditary chiefs because I know that's a big argument, argument right now. And you just point to like our money and why the Queen's on the money and she's a hereditary queen if you think about it that way. So I think there's small ways you can do that, but, but it, again, it's worth your mental sanity to go on Facebook and try to do those things. Yeah. And I think there's not really a good route to do that unless you really just have conversations with people yeah. and try to yeah. expand outside here on who you talk to and interactions you have day to day. But I guess those two comments I think are really good to, I guess ammo for you to use if you need it, <laughs> a Facebook comment or kind of thing. But. And I think it's important too to realize, like, or like at least pick your battles with yeah. the people who are open-minded to seeing different 
also just like, is it worth your time to try to educate somebody whose beliefs are so deeply entrenched that you're not gonna change their mind anyways? So I think there's something to be said about what you were suggesting um, in reframing the truth and reconciliation kind of action items and that it starts with the youth, I think. Like it's very important to start with the youth because those are the minds that are being molded, right? Um, some of the older generations have just like, they're just, they're, you're not gonna change their mind, um, but change can be made with the next generations, yeah. So we are almost out of time, but we do have like a 30 minute break where you can go come up and ask speakers questions if, you, if all of you are staying for the 30 minutes. Um, hate being the moderator in these sessions because I feel like I'm always shutting down the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really bad. Um, but yeah, so please um, thank the speakers again for, for sharing the knowledge with us today. That's it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.